this place without you encountering them with your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, who knows what day it is today? Other than Sunday. It's Pentecost. Come on, it's Pentecost Sunday. Are you excited? Are you Pentecostal? Okay. So the church was born on this day, and amazing things happened at the day of Pentecost. You had a group of guys who said they were 100%, but after Jesus was crucified and they thought he was dead, they were hiding from the authorities. Anybody remember that? If anybody was 100%, I would say these guys were 100%. It wasn't enough. Then Jesus appeared to them and said, you know what? Your 100% isn't enough. You need to go to Jerusalem, and you need to wait until I pour out upon you the promise of the Father, because that's going to take your 100% and multiply it a hundredfold when he comes. That's how Jesus gets glorified in his church is because the things that we do, we can't do on our own. It's supernatural and the spirit of God that he sends to dwell within us empowers us and makes Jesus real and alive. And he's glorified through that because everybody knows you can't do that. You can't do that. So I feel a couple things today. Every time that I look out, this is, this is for real. I'm, I'm no flatterer, I can tell you that. Anybody that knows me knows that's true. Every time I look out on this congregation, I think to myself, God, what in the world can you be thinking to do in this place with all of these people that you've sent here? I'm serious. I'm amazed. I look at the quality of the people that he sent here. I'm not flattering you. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm encouraging you from the Lord. I feel like the Lord put this in my heart just to encourage you. I want you guys to know when we get together and meet as elders and talk about this congregation, like we sit there and look at each other and like, the people that the Lord has sent here, this is, this is amazing. What can he possibly have in his mind that he's going to do sending these people here? It's crazy. And we're thinking, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> but God is doing something. And I, and I want you to know that we and I have absolute confidence that the Lord is going to get us where he wants us to go. He's going to do that. Not because... I'm all for the 100%, and I'm not, I'm not minimizing that at all. We're all in, but the, the thing that makes the difference, obviously, is the power, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He wants our full surrender, but the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is going to get us there. And I was reminded of the story when one of my sons was little and learning to ride a bike. How many have ever had a child and you, learned, you, teach, you taught them how to ride a bike? It's an amazing thing because they're like, I can never learn. I'll never learn how to ride. And you're like, hey, you will. You, you will, I promise you, you will learn. And so one of my sons had a particularly hard time. And I'm out there with him, and I said, look, I'm going to run beside you and hold the bike. And you're going to pedal, and you're going to hold on to the handlebars, and, 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 and we're running along like this. And I totally let go of the bike, and I'm running beside him. And he's calling out, I can't do it. I can't do it. I said, look, you are doing it. He's like, oh. And he could ride his bike from that time on. That's the way the Father does with us, because I can tell you the truth, honestly, Dave can attest to this at Heart of the Father, like we haven't really known what we're doing, and we're just trying to find our way in the Lord's heart and what He's wanting to do in this body, 
And we're like that, running along, Lord. We can't do it. We don't know what to do. And he's like, you're, you're doing it. And, and I believe we're at that place. And so I have a lot of joy and encouragement in my heart for all the things that the Lord is doing. I see you guys. You guys don't know this, but like I'm, a, I'm an observer. I sit and I go in the back corner and I just watch. And I watch you guys. And I watch how you minister to each other. I watch how you love each other. I watch how you pray for each other. I watch how you hug each other. And, you know, for me as a, as a father, when, when I see there's nothing that brings greater joy to my heart as a dad than to see my kids loving each other. Like my wife and I will sit there and talk, man, isn't it so beautiful? Our kids love each other so much. You know, when they were little, they'd be in the room, and they'd be talking, 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 talking. Diane's like, honey, you need to go in there and make them stop talking. There. I said, baby, no, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. They love to be together, and they enjoy each other. That's a beautiful thing. That's what Father thinks about his own family. He loves to see the saints loving each other, building each other up. And so on this Pentecost Sunday, I have a couple of things in my heart one is just the joy the expectation and the absolute I want to tell you I have absolute assurance in my heart conviction the Lord is going to get us where he wants us to go the second conviction that I have absolutely know is that we're not there yet but we're going and he's running beside us and he's saying no just pedal just pedal just keep your eyes on front of you don't look down hold the handlebars and he's working with us and he's going to get us there so last uh, time that I spoke, I, I wanted to engage this idea that our DNA here at Heart of the Father is that we want to combine the Word of God being strongly preached and the moving of the Holy Spirit in freedom. We want those things to be married together because we believe that's the New Testament pattern. That's the pattern where Jesus is most glorified and where people are most impacted for Him. And so we want that. So we, we talked some about spiritual gifts um, last time, and that's always kind of fun, I think. I think it's fun, the stories of spiritual gifts. and just I think it's exciting, the Holy Spirit moving in, in the lives of people, and all of that is good and powerful. I want to talk about something that is um, equally as important, because what we're trying to do, what we want to do, and what our hearts desire to do in this place is to create an atmosphere where the Holy Spirit is pleased to dwell and to manifest himself in his fullness. That's what we're going after. And so there's a few different things. One is the deep desire. I pressed you last time that we talked, and I asked you, when's the last time that you earnestly prayed with all of your heart before the Lord and said, Lord, use me in spiritual gifts because the Bible talks about three different times in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Earnestly what? Earnestly what? It's a burning desire. Yeah, earnestly desire to prophesy, earnestly desire the greater gifts, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Three times Paul says that to a church that's in excess. Why do you do that? I want to tell you why. Because... There's always tons of wet blankets around to put out wildfire in the church, but it's really hard to get the fire started. And once you get it out, it's hard to get it started again. So Paul's like, no, don't put the fire out. You guys are in excess. Don't put it out. I want to tell you, keep blowing on the fire, but this is what you need to do. Channel it in this way so that you're using it and seeing it for what it really is. You're building up your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Jesus wants to use you to build up 
the body. Each one has been given a gift, right? Anybody say amen? amen. Yeah. Each one's been given a gift. So what do we do with that gift? We make ourselves available for the Lord to use us to build up our brothers and our sisters in him. On the day of Pentecost, there was a huge transformation that happened. I mentioned these guys hiding in the room. I don't criticize them. I would have been there probably underneath the bed. Come on, you would have too. But when the Holy Spirit came upon them, everything changed. Everything changed. Then they were called, not the ones that were hiding and fearful, they were called the ones who came. These guys have come here also who have turned the world upside down. That was the difference that the Holy Spirit made. Here's, to me, one of the most radical transformations that happened. We like to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, and I love that, and I want to talk about some of that today. But there was a different kind of change that the Holy Spirit brought when he came on the day of Pentecost. It was a relational change. It was relationship change. Let me read you just a few scriptures out of the book of Acts that you're familiar with. Acts 1.14 says, They were all with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 2.44, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And Acts 4.32 said, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And not one of them, do you get the emphasis that he's making here? Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. That's radical. That's radical transformation. That is so against, how many know that's totally against human nature? You don't all get together and go, hey dude, whatever you need of mine, just come and get it. Now, you might say that when I come to your house, like Jeremiah did that one time. I've never let him forget it. He said, mi casa es su casa. I said, dude, well, that's great, man. But, like, do you mind if I go up in your bedroom, like, and go through your drawers? Can I see your computer and see your viewing history? Like, can I see your checkbook? Do you mind if my wife and I sleep in your bed night just to check it out and see how it is? <laughs> no, he didn't mean it. He meant if you want a drink, you can get one out of the fridge. <laughs> but he didn't mean my house is your house. But when the Holy Spirit came into lives, that's what he meant. Hey, dude, you need my property? I'll sell it. This, this is a radical and here's what I want to go after today. The atmosphere that the Holy Spirit dwells in is repeated over and over again in Scripture. is an atmosphere of unity where there's oneness. This is not that we all believe exactly the same thing. Can I, can I tell you something? I hope this doesn't bother you. But like on the eldership team, we don't believe all of exactly the same things about every Scripture. Like, we go back and forth about it. Like, dude, that doesn't, that can't mean that. Other thing. Yeah, but this and that. It's really healthy. I don't mean major doctrines, but little things, like interpretation. It's really okay. 
That's not what he's talking about. When he says of one heart and one soul, we're going to get into what that might mean and how that prepares an atmosphere for the Holy Spirit to come in and do what he wants. I, I'm super encouraged, and yet inside of me, I will tell you the truth, there's always in me a longing and a hurting and a yearning and a groaning for everything that the Father has. I feel like my whole Christian life, that groaning has always been inside of me. Like there's, there, you know, there's more. So heart of the Father. It's just, but there is. And the Father has a destiny for this place. And inside of me, there's just a reaching and a longing and a crying out to Lord, yes, bring us there. And he said, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. That's what this message is about, is us getting to the place where good is not good enough, where we want 100%, not of our own effort alone, but we want 100% of what the Father's heart is in this place. Can, can you agree with me on that? Are, are you with me on that? Would you be willing, would you be willing if the Lord showed you for us to get where we need to get as a community, would you be willing if the Lord said, but it's going to cost you this to get there? How many are willing? How many are willing? Saying, oh, it's okay, Lord. It's okay. Okay. The Lord sees every one of those hands because he's going to call. You know, I tell people, when you make vows to the Lord, he's going to come and call on it. Azusa Street, and we're going to get into the scripture here in just a minute. We're going to go to Psalm 133 if you want to turn there. Azusa Street has um, the movement where Pentecost basically was reintroduced into the world in the early 1900s. It was at its peak in 1906, 1908 for three years, roughly, in California, Los Angeles. It was a powerful move of the Holy Spirit, and it was characterized by such amazing, unusual, and powerful manifestations of the Holy Spirit. We talked a little bit about that. I just want you to know, I don't glorify or worship revival or revivalists, and I I don't have in my heart, like, I think the Lord's going to repeat exactly the same thing. I don't think he's going to do that. But what I do get from reading after these guys is that I want to glean from their heart. I want to hear the ache that's inside of them. I want to feel what makes their gut turn and what makes them move and motivates them because that's God. I look for what God had planted in them, and I go, God, plant that in me too. These guys were just as flawed as you and me. That's good news. That's really good news because they were just like us trying to go, I can't do it. And the Lord said, watch, you are doing it. But I feel the groan in my heart. I just want to read you a couple things and just want to show you the place that, you, you know, one of the most powerful things that happened at Azusa is that there was racial and ethnic reconciliation in a powerful way. I don't know if you know this, but in the early 1900s, Racism was rife and rampant in our country in a huge way. And there was a strict dividing line in schools, stores, everything. It was was huge. So the Lord, of course, picks the son of a slave to lead this movement because he's going to break the back of that devilish thing. So here's William Seymour, the son of slaves, uneducated, 
Lost one of his eyes, has a glassed eye in his left eye. Not the, not the candidate that you would think that the Lord's going to use to cause worldwide revival. Do you know that every Pentecostal denomination in the world today basically was launched directly or indirectly through Azusa Street, this little run-down shack? In 2006, there were 600 million Pentecostals in the world. 600 million! How many would say that's good impact? Put that on any newsletter. What's your mailing list, brother? We just crossed the 600 million mark. Racism was broken. In their meetings, there would be so many different ethnicities of the outcast. There were 20 different nationalities in any given meeting, and there might only be 100 people. God was doing something powerful. And he goes, I like this. I like this unity. I like this oneness of spirit. When they gathered together, they weren't gathering together to listen to the glass-eyed preacher because he had his head in a box. He's crying out to God. He's just waiting on the Lord, and they're all there seeking the Lord. Do you know that the vast majority of the healings that had at Azusa Street, were the people were healed by children? The children would go around and pray for people, and they saw creative miracles happen one after the other. Every single, I've, I've read um, testimonies of probably 20 different of the children that were at Azusa Street, and they're all like, the only reason that you didn't have miracles come through your hands is because you didn't pray for people. Because whenever we prayed for people, they saw arms grow out. They saw people that were healed of cancer, incurable diseases, where there were tumors the size of basketballs that fall off the body. Those kind of things happen. But they're children. The Lord somehow was pleased to dwell there. And he did powerful things through Susa. I don't worship it. It wasn't flawless. It wasn't perfect because there were people there. But God did something. And I always look for where the Lord is pleased. Lord, you were pleased with this? Let me, let me get on that boat. Here's what Frank Bartleman, who was kind of like the prayer warrior of Azusa Street, and he's written some books. I recommend you get it. I have mine all highlighted and marked up and whatever. I read over phrases sometimes, and I just feel the groan again. And it's good to feel that way. I mean, no, it's good to feel a groan in your soul that there's more that God has for you. Who wants to sit the rest of your life in a chair and just be numb and go, I've already got all that? Just take me, Lord. I don't want to do that. God was in his holy temple. This is Bartleman. I stopped more than once two blocks from the place of the building and prayed for strength before I dared go on to the building. That's how thick the presence of God was in the building. For days, that presence stayed with us. I could scarcely take up normal conversations again. They seemed so empty. Earthly fellowship was a torment. Love and unity were the key. Divine love ruled. No unkind words against oppressors or other churches were allowed in the meetings. We knew the moment we had grieved the Holy Spirit by an unkind thought or word. We lived in a sea of pure, divine love. The Lord fought our battles. We never sought to defend the work or ourselves. Nothing contrary to the pure spirit was allowed there. It was no joke or light thing to join that company. God took strong men and women apart and put them back together as he desired for his glory. All things like pride, self-assertion, self-importance, self-esteem, self-plans could not survive there. 
No one knew what was coming, what God would do. We wanted to hear God through whomever might speak with no respect of persons. We only recognized God. All people were equal. No flesh could glory in his presence. All came down together at his feet. How many like that kind of an atmosphere? Maybe we do and maybe we don't. But let's get there. He wants to take us to a place. Listen, if you prayed for the city at all and you have any years on you, there's destiny in the city. And the Lord wants to bring it forth. I, for one, want to give my life to be part of that. I can't live being normal, being satisfied, being filled and being worthless. I can't live that way. So sorry about that sharp edge. <laughs> it comes out of me. But there's a groan in my soul. Psalm 133, so powerful. Let's look at that. The title of my message is where, where God Commands the Blessing. Psalm 133, I want to read it. It's only three verses. And then I want to look at some of the details of it. And then we're going to go to Philippians chapter 2. Psalm 133. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in, say it loud, unity. unity. Behold, how good and how pleasant. That phrase, those two words together, how good and how pleasant, is a phrase that's used throughout the Hebrew Old Testament. Hebrew scholars call it the formula of blessing. And basically, where you usually see it is that where the Lord comes and contacts and meets with his people, he blesses them. He delights them. He shows his beauty and his power and his glory. That phrase is a, is, is a phrase that's used throughout the, New Te the Old Testament like that. How good and how pleasant. This is the place of God's blessing, of his pouring out of his goodness. It's when brothers dwell together in unity. Verse 2, it's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edges of his robe. What, what oil is he talking about? What oil is he talking about? The, starts with an A-N-O-I-N-T, <laughs> it's the oil of anointing, right? So they anointed the tabernacle parts with it. They anointed the high priest, and they anointed the priest with it. Look at um, Exodus chapter 30. Let's just look at this for just a second. This is so powerful. Exodus 30, verse 22, says this. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take also for yourself the finest of spices, Flowing myrrh, 500 shekels, and fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250. Fragrant cane, 250, of cassia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil, a hen. So he's talking about what the mixture is. So what's in this, what's in this anointing oil? There's four different spices that are really fragrant and valuable and expensive, and there's olive oil, and it's mixed together. How do you think that oil smelled? Smelled pretty good, pretty fragrant. When you anoint the tent of meeting, or this is verse 25, you shall make of these a holy anointing oil, 
a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of the incense and the altar of burnt offering and all the utensils and the laver and its stand. You shall also consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whoever touches them shall be holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister as priests to me. And you shall speak to the sons of Israel saying, this is a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on anyone's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever shall mix any like it or put, whoever puts any of it on a layman, meaning uh, someone who wasn't a priest, shall be cut off from his people. So God was pretty serious about this oil. What do you think the oil represents? The anointing, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I, I think that's pretty clear. I don't think that's a stretch at all, and we could prove that, but I will just leave that with you. I think that's obvious. So here's what happened. What is it that's like the pouring of the oil over his head? What's, what's like that? Unity. When the brothers are dwelling together in unity, so we don't have the little oil thing up here, but you see our little oil flask is, is about that big. And what we do is we take a little bit of oil and put it on the finger, and then we, we do something like this. Okay. That's not how they anointed the high priest. Dude, when they anointed the high priest, they had a big pitcher. They said, dude, come, on, come up here. Stand on this plastic. No, it, they poured it on his head, and it ran down his head, and it ran down his beard, and it said it ran down to the hems of his garments. Now, scholars disagree where there's like two hems on the high priest's garment. One was here at the collar, and one was all the way down here. And a lot of scholars believe that it, it ran down his head, down his beard, underneath his tunic, all the way down his legs. That's a lot of oil. Why do you need that much oil to, pour, to anoint the high priest? Like, why can't you just do a little... Bless you, brother. <laughs> what is the Lord communicating with this? When he anointed the high priest, he didn't just want a little measure of the Holy Spirit. No, it's not just a little bit. It's excessive. It's messy. It's all over you. You think of what his hair was like. Talk about having greasy hair. His hair is completely saturated. His beard, it's running down inside of his clothes. What's it like when brothers dwell together in true unity? It's like the father says, oh, come over here. I have something for you. It's not one of these. It's like, dude, get under the spout where the glory comes out. <laughs> it pours. He, he takes a people and he pours that oil to where it runs in your eyes you think it got in his eyes? You think it ran inside of his ears? Have you ever had something poured over your head? It gets in your ears. You're like, mm. Everywhere. God wants to pour out excessive amounts of his spirit. This is what he does when brothers dwell together in unity. And we're going to talk about what this looks like, but I want you to get the picture of what the Father... Do you know he put a whole psalm in the Bible to talk about this? 
There's only three verses, but that's this whole psalm. I want to tell you what it's like. This is David. I want to tell you what it's like when brothers dwell in unity. The father gets excited and he goes, Holy Spirit, come on. How many want oil in your ears? Down your back, down your front, where you're just like, bring it. No part of me, that Lord, not anointed by your spirit. This is where he does it. It's when brothers dwell together in unity, coming down. You see, see that phrase, coming down? It's used three times in the psalm. Twice in verse 2, once in verse 3. Look, it's like the precious oil upon the head coming down. Where, where does it start? It starts at the top. He pours it on. It's coming down upon the head, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edges of his robe. Verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon. All right, what is the dew of Hermon? Hermon and Israel, who knows Israel topography? All right. All right, this, will, this will be on the, the Bible trivia. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, now I want you on my team, bro. You know more trivia than I do. Okay, Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in Israel. It's 9,200 plus feet high. It's tall. Tall mountains typically, most all of the year in Israel, if you look at Mount Hermon, what are you going to see? You're going to see snow. Because there's moisture, and those tall mountains tend to collect. The, when the clouds go over, they get the moisture. They get the moisture. And so Mount Hermon is very lush, very um, filled with vegetation, very green. It's very much filled with life. But Mount Hermon, it says here, coming down again upon the mountains of Zion. Well, Mount Hermon is like 120 miles north of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It really, the water doesn't flow down the mountain. There isn't a river that goes all the way down to Jerusalem. What is the picture here? Here's, <laughs> to me, like the symbolism is, is really clear. You've got the highest peak in Israel. This is the heavenly places where the Lord is. When brothers dwell together in unity, the life, the lush moisture that everybody needs because Mount Zion is pretty dry in the desert there. It doesn't, it doesn't get very much rain. But that moisture, even though it's 120 miles away, God takes what is his on his mountain and he comes and he rains it on Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? If you'll look at the psalm just before this, it's just right on the same page in my Bible. Psalm 132, look at verse 13. Psalm 132, 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his... Say it loud. He's desired it for his habitation. The Lord says, I want to live there. I'm going to dwell there with my people. You see what he, where this is going. This is my resting place. Come on. Forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. You see where this is going. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her need with bread. 
Her priests also I will clothe with salvation, and her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. What is the symbolism? What is Mount Zion? It's the place where the temple was, where God said, I'm going to dwell with my people in this place. And he says, when brothers dwell together in unity, it's like God taking from his place where there's always plenty of water, always plenty of vegetation, always plenty of life. And he's going to take it and he's going to bring it down and he's going to rain it on Mount Zion where his people are because they're dwelling together in unity. I I guess that doesn't fire you guys up. Like, I want to shout. Here you go, coming down upon the mountains of Zion for there, where, where, there the Lord commanded the blessing. I like it when the Lord offers a blessing, but I love it when he commands it. Be blessed! You can't not be blessed when he says... When he commands you to be blessed, you will be blessed. And when he commands a people to be blessed, we will be blessed. He commands it there. Where is there? It's where brothers dwell together in unity. You want to live in a place where the Father commands his blessing on you. (laughs) Amen, 100%. Are Are you following me? Do do we want to have a place? Can you imagine the joy of the Father standing up from his throne going, look at that. Look at that, my people dwelling in unity, loving one another, sacrificing for one another, giving to one another, same heart and same mind, same passion. Watch. I wonder how many of these, and I, I really hope that the Lord lets us see some of these past events that have happened, you know. Roll that one back, Lord. Like when you did that, I'm going to see that. Lazarus come forth, all those kind of things. He stands up and goes, watch. Be blessed! Here comes the pouring of the Holy Spirit. Everybody's got oil in their eyes and in their ears. They're like, what's just happened? Come on. This is what the Holy Spirit does inside of us. He builds in us a unity of heart and purpose. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to land after this. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 27 of chapter 1 first, and then we'll read chapter 2, 1 through 8. Philippians 1, 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of, of the gospel of Christ. How many want to do that? Okay, you with me? If you want to conduct your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, raise your hand. Okay, I want participation. Raise your hand. Okay, here's how we do it. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you're standing firm in, say it, one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. What is he saying about us walking worthy of the gospel of Jesus? We can't do it alone. 
See, I can't walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus by myself. I have to have you with me. Like, will you go with me? Will you, will you go with me? Will you help me walk worthy of the gospel? Because we've got to walk it together. We have to be of one mind and of one spirit, and we have to do it together. And then chapter 2, he's going to unpack this and explain what unity looks like. Therefore, verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete. How, Paul, how do we make your joy complete, Paul? How do we do that? By being of the same mind. Okay, everybody say mind. Okay, you're going to see that repeated a few different times in this passage, and here's what I want to tell you when you read it. In my translation, twice it's translated as mind, and the other time it's translated as attitude. If you have a different translation, maybe different words. It's the same Greek word. And the idea behind it is, so being of the same mind is not that we all have the same taste. Do you agree? We don't have the same taste in music. Okay. Most of you are not Buccaneers fans. It's probably just Brennan and me in this room. Okay. So... It doesn't mean that we have the same taste, that we like the same things. It doesn't even mean we believe the exact same things about interpretation of every verse. Here's what I want to get at. Unity in the Bible is not about the trivial things of life, like we like the same colors, we like the same style of clothes, we like the same food. We know we don't do that. But what we do have together is that we're all about the same person. We acknowledge together, we're going to run together because this is not about me and it's not about you. It's about him who called us. It's about Jesus. So we are all about the person of Jesus and we're passionate about the mission that he's given us to accomplish, which is to spread the gospel in the kingdom of God. That's what constitutes the heart and soul of unity. And for those causes, so that we can run together and do it better together, then we overlook the little stuff that irritates and chafes us. So some of you don't like me yelling from the pulpit. I'm so sorry. (laughs) It bothers you a little bit. It frays your nerves. I'm really sorry. I don't mean to do that, but... The Lord wired me a certain way where there's like explosive stuff inside of my gut. I don't know what it is, but it just comes out. I'm an exhorter. We all have issues that personality-wise we don't exactly click. That's not the basis of unity, may I suggest to you. That's why the Bible says, forgive one another whenever you have a complaint against one another. Forbear, persevere, don't let it get under your skin. You just have to keep on going. Why? Because wherever there's people, you're going to have disagreements. Wherever there's people, you're going to have vegans, like that one one article I read is, to me, hilarious. The the headline of the news (laughs) article. Vegan woman rams chicken truck. (laughs) And um, I I just laughed out loud. I couldn't stop laughing. I'm like, really? And, And I go to read on the rest of the article, and then she backed up and rammed him again. Because she was a vegetarian, you know, she was a vegan and she just thought it was horrendous that they sold chicken. We got vegans and then we got people with chicken hanging out of their teeth. 
And the vegans go, what's that in your teeth? Don't tell me. That's not the basis of unity. I want to tell you the basis of unity is the person of Jesus Christ and the mission that he's called us to do together. Okay? Vegans and Henry VIII can live together in harmony. Because that's not what defines us. That's not the basis of unity. The basis of our unity in Christ Jesus is the person of Christ and the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And our Father, we all have the same Father. We have the same DNA flowing through our veins. We belong to the same family. We're related and will be, this is the great news, we will be forever. And you know what? Our differences in heaven won't chafe us anymore. How many of you happy for that? Here's the mistake that we make in the body of Christ. Where the Lord has sent us and planted us, here's what we have to do. We have to focus on the things that build and strengthen our unity and not focus on the stupid things like chicken in your teeth. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Political persuasion, it doesn't matter. It's the person that we're passionate about. It's the mission that we have together and we're going to run together and what that does is it allows us the freedom to get to know people and to get close would you agree with me that if you say that a people is of one heart one spirit one mind intent on the same purpose they probably have to know each other a little bit would you agree do you think you have, when you go to a coliseum for a sporting event or whatever, would you say, everybody in here is of one heart, one mind, one spirit? No, they're not. No, they're not. We have to know each other. Here's the whole push in the scripture for community. And here's the thing that chafes people because community is hard sometimes. But this is where the Holy Spirit loves to dwell. He's, the Father is anxious to take that pitcher of oil I can pour it on your head to where it goes in your ears. He wants to do that in this place. We have to get ourselves in a position where we can be of one heart, one soul, and one mind. So how do we do that? Let's unpack it. Verse 2, make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Oh, here we go. Do nothing from selfishness. Or empty conceit. So it's not about me. It's not about my wants and my desires. It's not about my ambitions and about my dreams, unless they're given from God. Okay. Have you have you ever looked in the mirror? Like I do this. You go. I know you're pretty crazy, but I. You should look in the mirror sometime and go. It's not about you. This is not about you. This is about Jesus. Your life. You were. I've always wanted to get, I thought if I ever got a tattoo, this is what I would get. So, I'm not going to. <laughs> Unless you pledge $10,000 for missions. <laughs> Come on, let's get a bid going up. <laughs> if I ever got enough money for missions, I would get a tattoo on my wrist that said, bought with a price. I'm not my own. Come on, think about it. How much? We're bought with a price. We're not our own. 
It's not about us. It's not about our preferences. Okay? Listen, can I tell you something? This is, this is in, in, in the Western church, church is all about preferences. But in the kingdom of God, church is about where did the Lord plant you to join hands with people that you're accomplishing a, a mission and you're passionate for the same person, the same Lord, and the same gospel. And you're going to give it all that you have with those around you. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Nothing. I, I call this passage, this is what I call it. I don't mean it to be too harsh. Because I wrestle with it myself. Reading over this passage to prepare for this this morning, I'm like, oh, <laughs> God help. But I call passages like this fantasy theology in the church. Because, like, we can quote the verses, but, like, it has no semblance of reality in our lives. There could be a whole book of fantasy theology verses. Whenever you encounter various trials, count it nothing but pure joy. For real? Put that in the fantasy book. How many times shall I forgive my brother, Lord? Seven times? No. Seven times 70. Fantasy book. Take no offense. Love never takes offense. Fantasy theology. Come on. Is it real? Is it real? Is it real? The Lord wants us to be more real. So uh, my prayer is, my prayer is not hopelessness. My prayer is, God, I'm far from this, but I take conviction from it. Work in me. Bring me to that place. What if we had a group where everybody was moving towards that place? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility. Here's, here's the word again, humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. You, you know this verse is actually stronger than what it appears, even though that hits pretty hard. Verse 4, do not merely, the, the word merely there in my translation is actually added by the translators. Here's how it actually reads in the Greek. Do not look out for your own personal interest. Pause but also for the interests of others. You, do, do you know what that means? This, this is important that that word's left out. I know why the translator supplied it, because they don't want you to just go out and run out in front of a train or starve yourself. To, they, you know, obviously, he's not saying that. But the reason that he wrote it that way, the force of it in, in the Greek is that the default and the bent is that we prefer other people before we meet our own needs. That's actually import of that verse. Like, how many of us do we live like, I'm going to meet your need before my own needs are met? How many say with me, help God? That's the Spirit of God. Who's the example of this you know? So, so let, let me just back up for just a second. I, I mentioned to you about being of the same mind in verse 2, um, humility of mind in verse 3, and then verse 5 says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. So those three words are the same words in the Greek. We're getting ready to wrap up here. A couple minutes. Just remember that Paul said finally in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, which is exactly the middle of the book. 
So don't get too anxious. I'm just taking my cues from Paul, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, um, All right, mine. The, the, here's, the, here's the deal with mine. It doesn't mean that we think the same. It's talking about an attitude that is at the core of who we are. Okay? When he's saying, have this mind or this attitude in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, he's not just talking about certain thoughts. Or, he's talking about what is the core values that are rooted inside of us. Let your core value be to prefer your brother above yourself and to meet their needs before you meet their own. And here's the example that he gives us because he doesn't let us off the hook. That's Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Was he equal with God? Was he? Yeah, totally equal with God, but he didn't take advantage of his privileges. He laid them down. Why did he lay them down? So that you and I could be sitting here today on our way to heaven forever, rescued from the rightful wrath of God. Yeah, that's why. He did it. He's our example. He was the king. He was worthy of everything. He was not worthy to be born in a stable. He was not worthy to be mocked. He was not worthy to be beaten. He was not worthy to be crucified. He was not worthy to be slandered and blasphemed. But he laid down what his rights were. See, that this is the miracle of the Holy Spirit. He helps us to lay down our rights for the sake of the good of somebody else. This is what we do when we have children. How many know? How many know? Dead tired, bed at night. <coughs> Husband and wife both look at each other like, are you awake? <laughs> Anybody honest enough to say you've done that? You lay down your rights for the sake of somebody else. Although he existed in the form of God, this is the highest to the lowest, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's mine. But he emptied himself. If, if this word, if, if, if there's a word that characterizes, I think, this spirit or this mindset that he's talking about should be at the core of our being, it's this, I'll empty myself for you. I'll, I'll empty myself for you. What is rightly mine, I will lay down and empty myself for you for the sake of the one and for the sake of his mission. Do you know that this is what brings oneness and unity? It's for a people to do this, being found in appearance as a man. He, what did he do? He humbled himself, not just by saying he was sorry. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Is this radical that Paul said, you know what? That same mind that motivated Jesus to do that for you, like that mind needs, that needs to be your core default attitude in your heart. When you do that, you're going to be of one mind and one spirit and one's heart and one soul, intent on one purpose. And I want to tell you something. The father's up there waiting. He's got plenty of oil. Oh, Lord, we want you to pour out the oil upon us. We want you to sweep in and move. He's going, I'm ready. 
Where's my group of brothers and sisters dwelling in unity together? Because those are the ones that I'm going to pour it on their head. Where are they? You guys, I think, are an awesome group, and I honestly, before the Lord, feel honored to be part of your body. I just know for myself, there's more we can do. We can move deeper and farther and higher in this. Here's the, here's the lullaby that the devil sings to the church. You're good. You're good now. Everything's fine. Your life has been turned around. You're not going down the path to hell and destruction. You're, you're God. Just chill. Enjoy. And the Father's saying, no. Have this mind in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus. Let this be your default attitude. And if you'll do that as a group and together, and if you'll get over the chicken in the teeth and all of those things that irritate you and just focus on the main thing, keep the main thing, the main thing. Here's what I'm going to do. When you're gathered together, I'm going to pour oil on you all over you. You don't even try to get a napkin and wipe it off. You can't. You're going to be saturated with this oil. How good. How pleasant. How delightful it is when brothers and sisters truly dwell together in unity of heart, of soul, and of mind in Christ Jesus. Bow your heads with me. Father, I pray that you would work in us. Lord, we need your help. I pray that for some of us you would wake us up and that we would not be numb anymore. We would not think we're good, but we would recognize the high calling that you have upon us and the destiny that is in this place and that we would respond with our heart and our soul. Father, make us a people that dwell together in unity, that you would be anxious and eager to come and to pour your oil all over this place. No person untouched, no person unimpacted, no family unimpacted, and our community would feel the reach and the power of the gospel. Do the work that you need to do in our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would Give us the gift of repentance where we need to repent. That you would open our eyes and that you would let us not just um, lay this aside, but that we would truly wrestle with it and let your spirit do in us what we can never do ourselves. That your name and your purpose would be magnified in this place. In Jesus' name.